Good morning. In the Bible, throughout the first four books of the New Testament, we read about this guy who was a fisherman in the northern part of Israel. And that was his living. He was a fisherman. Until one day he starts to follow this itinerant rabbi, which is a fancy word for a teacher who had no home base. This guy follows this teacher for about three years. Seems to move up the ranks pretty well. He does tend to either put his foot in his mouth or get a little bit too hasty sometimes, wanting to move a little bit quickly. Some might call him impetuous. If you would call somebody impetuous who would jump out of a boat because he wants to walk on water or chop the ear off somebody, that could be impetuous. I don't know. This guy got some things very, very right and some things wrong. But something did happen to him over the course of these three years. Something changed quite a bit in this man. He was a fisherman. But then a few months after his teacher died, this guy is now teaching himself. Not teaching himself, but he is himself teaching. I have a rock. I'm sorry. I don't know why. We're not there yet. (laughs) Okay. Anyway, so he's teaching, and 3,000 people join him and three of his, and the rest of his friends, who, they were all followers of the teacher. And uh, he travels around to different places, teaching, and he's amazing people with this teaching of his. And more and more people start to join this movement, and he's, he writes a couple of letters that we still have copies of today that are so rich and and worthwhile, and it's not something that people were thinking would come from a fisherman from that time. So what changed in this person's life? How do we go from, you know, what would be called a lowly fisherman to someone who is still remembered and learned from today? This guy's name was Simon. He followed Jesus, which gave him the name Peter, which means rock. (laughs) It's, It's a rock, I promise. It's just small. Apparently they couldn't give me a big rock. For the last couple of months, we've been looking at the letter of 1 Peter in the Bible in our last series called Everyday Hope. For the next three weeks, because we figured, well, we've got three open weeks before like Thanksgiving, Christmas, start getting rolling. So 2 Peter has three chapters. Now let's just do 2 Peter. So we're going to do 2 Peter um, now in these next three weeks. So Peter saw this drastic change in his life because he started following Jesus. And in this letter, we're going to see his teaching on how we can live a godly life that is different than the world. And so if you have your Bibles, you want to open them and turn with me to the letter of Second Peter near the end of your Bible. And we're going to be in chapter 1 today, most of chapter 1. We're not quite going to finish it, but um, we'll start with verse 1. It says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. All right, so I've started a few of these sermon series that we've been doing, and I love to start with some background information because I think it's very important to understand what's going on during these times, who these people are, and everything. And this letter, so as we start with this, this letter is addressed as from being, being from Simon Peter, who uh, describes himself as a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. 
Simon, who, whose name, like I said, was changed to Peter by Jesus, was one of the earliest followers of Jesus, who were called apostles. He was also an early leader in the church. And unlike in his first letter, Peter also identifies himself here as a servant as well as an apostle of Jesus. And this word could also be translated as slave. Peter's not the only biblical author to refer to himself as a slave. Paul and James and Jude do the same as well. But by designating himself as a slave of Jesus Christ, Peter puts himself on the same level as his readers. Being a slave means that he places himself, as one commentator writes, on the same level as his readers as being one who, like all of his readers, submits his will wholly to that of the divine master who bought him and then and them to be his own. The connotation of doulos, which is the word we translate as slave, is not service or involuntary service, but unquestioning submission to Jesus Christ's will. Peter has given his life wholly over to God, and therefore he views himself as a slave. And it's not something that's meant to be degrading. It's not something meant to be demeaning. It's actually meant to be an honorary kind of term. He's saying, I'm willingly giving up my life to Jesus because of what he has for me. And it is so much greater than what I can do myself. So we know the from, so then he moves on to who this letter is addressed to, where he writes, those who are the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ and have received a faith as precious as ours. So in 1 Peter, we saw a very direct statement of who that letter was addressed to. It was to the seven churches of regions in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. This one is a little bit more broad and vague. However, a lot of biblical scholars who study these letters very deeply believe that this was written to these same churches as 1 Peter. And they use 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 to argue this, where he says, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. Now, I wouldn't say that it's exactly clear that he's going to the same churches here, but he does mention in the first he does mention a first letter written to this same audience. And and you know, I'm not positive that this would necessarily indicate that he was writing to the same audience, but it is still fairly close and a lot of people do believe that. Peter has a couple of reading, reasons for writing this letter. And the first and what we're going to look at today is that he's encouraging them to live godly lives through the grace of God. And he also wants to ensure that they take care against false teachers who have been going out and introducing heresies or false teaching into the, into the, uh, to new believers in these churches. Paul also wrote against false teachers in uh, quite a few of his letters. And so, with that being said, our background information, let's dive a little bit deeper into the first chapter and let's start with verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through his knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he's given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. One of the things we talk about a lot is how our lives should change as we begin to live them for Christ. In this passage, Peter writes about what the catalyst for that change is. It's through God's power, which is immeasurable. 
And, and through that power, we've been given everything that we need in order to live lives that have been transformed by him. The power to change comes through the grace that's been given us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We begin to see the world differently. As Peter writes, we begin to live godly lives. It's through his glory and goodness that he's given us great and precious promises. The 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon once wrote about these two words, great and precious, that they're not often being placed together. They're not often used together. He writes, many things are great that are not precious, such as great rocks which are of little value. On the other hand, many things are precious that are not great, such as diamonds and other jewels which cannot be very great if they are very precious. But here we have promises that are so great that they are not less than infinite, and so precious that they are not less than divine. They do exceed, they do indeed exceed all things with which they can be compared. None ever promised as God has done. Kings have promised even to the half of their kingdoms, but what of that? God promised to give his own son and even his own self to his people and he did it. Princes draw a line somewhere, but the Lord sets no bounds to the gifts that he ordains for his chosen. The promises that God has made to us, that, that promise that he made to us is that he would send someone to rescue us. That someone was his son in Jesus, and that was a very great and precious promise. God taking on flesh, becoming human, in order to be the perfect sacrifice for us. So that we may overcome death. Through these promises, we are then able to participate in the divine nature. That doesn't mean that we are divine. It doesn't mean that we are gods. We are not, but we are made like God. We begin to live godly lives. Instead of following the corruption of the world's thinking, which seems to become more and more self-centered over time, we instead live as God would have us to live. And what does that look like? Well, Peter gives us, helpfully, a a, a list in verse 5, where he writes, For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. Some people call this list that Peter presents a ladder. You could also look at it as stairs as well. But the important thing is what the foundation is, and that is your faith. Your faith in Christ, that's the bedrock, and everything else gets added to that. That is the foundation that you can build your life on. Following faith, you should add goodness. The word goodness could be translated as excellence of character. Your character should represent your faith. This excellence of character is, as one commentator puts it, not simply an absence of bad habits, a life full of things that one does not do, but it's a positive, vigorous pursuit of what is morally right and helpful in all relationships. So you have goodness, and on goodness we add knowledge. This knowledge is the understanding of God's will through our relationship with Christ. We can't live a godly life if we don't know God's will. And how do we get to know his will? We prayerfully open this. We read scriptures. But we don't just read it. We study it. We meditate on it. We learn from it. You can even listen to it and learn from it. 
Like, you don't have to be somebody who went to seminary to understand it, to gain that knowledge. I was watching a YouTube video this week from a channel called the 10-Minute Bible Hour where this guy that runs the channel, Matt, he grabbed his 10-year-old son and then a friend of his who has a Master's of Divinity, that's the same degree that I have, and and he's a pretty brilliant theologian, and and he on-the-spot quizzed them about the book of Matthew. And he's asking them these questions, and... And they're giving answers, and he's kind of keeping tally of the score of uh, who's getting them right. And so on one hand, you've got somebody who has read countless books, been very educated for many years, and uh, studied this stuff over a long time. And then on the other hand, you've got this 10-year-old kid who has just been listening to the book of Matthew for about a month and a half before he goes to bed. And his son... He held his own, and I'm pretty sure he actually outscored the theologian. And partly that's because the theologian was kind of mixing up the other gospel stories because he knew a lot of them, but just finding the right spot and what the questions were. But, but Matt's son had a lot of these passages memorized, and he knew what he was talking about, and all he had done was just listen to Scripture and to learn it that way. It's not difficult I mean, finding knowledge and knowing God's will through the reading of Scripture is not hard. The Bible is the most published, best-selling book of all time. Over 5 billion copies sold. And of course, it's even easier today if you have one of these things in your pocket because all you have to do is get one app and they'll give it all to you for free, including any translation you want, audio version or many translations, audio for free. Like, audio Bibles were crazy expensive, you know, if you had to actually physically buy them on a CD or a cassette, if there are kids here, ask your parents. Uh, but now all you do is you just, you tap something, and, and you listen to it, or you read it. It's not difficult to find. So we have faith, we have goodness, we have knowledge, and to that we add self-control. Now, Paul listed self-control as one of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. And we did a sermon series on the fruit of the Spirit at the beginning of the year this year. And we devoted two weeks to discussing self-control. We thought it was that important. And self-control in a Christian's life is important since we're supposed to be giving our lives over to God, to his purposes. Having self-control means that we, don't long, we, we, we no longer act on our own impulses. Like we're not living for us, we're living for God. We, we are instead going after God's direction for our lives. Having self-control built on top of knowledge is important as well because like Paul says, knowledge puffs up. You, know, you, can, feel a lot, you can feel self-important when you have a lot of knowledge. It can give you a sense of superiority over somebody who may not know as much as you do. Having self-control is important in those instances. Like Peter wrote in his first letter, he says that Christians are to be of a sober mind. We don't lord our knowledge over people. We don't act holier than thou. We exercise godly self-control. And then on self-control, we add perseverance. Perseverance, having persistence in doing something despite the difficulty of it. We are to live with perseverance as Christians. Remember, one of the reasons we talked about why Peter wrote the first letter 
It was because these people that he was writing to were, were suffering and going through trials. And, and he was writing to encourage them, to help them persevere through those. We are called to do the same. The Christian life is not always an easy life. There are trials. There are times where we may suffer. There are Christians today experiencing this across the world. But we persevere because we know the one who is in true control of this world. We've quoted John sixteen thirty three a lot, but I think it's important to hear it over and over because as Jesus tells his disciples, he's preparing them for his death. He says, I told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We persevere because Christ has overcome this world. We persevere because one day, either when our life ends or he returns, we will be with him for eternity. We persevere. And so we have the foundation of faith. We add on top of that goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance. And now we come to godliness. Godliness is basically living a godly life. As Spurgeon writes, it means having a constant respect to God in all our ways, living to God and living like God so far as the finite can be like the infinite. And this is what we're talking about today, living a godly life. But one of the ways that we live a godly life is to intentionally pursue living a godly life. It has to be something that you want to do, that you intend on doing. It has to be something that you pursue, that you long after. Back in verse 3, Peter's said that God's given us everything that we need for living this life. And so we need to move and pursue it. Then there are two more that are on this list, and they both deal with love. The first is translated as mutual affection. This is translated from the Greek word Philadelphia. We've got a city named after that. And what, what is, uh, what's Philadelphia called? The city of brotherly love, right? That's what this word means. It, it's love for one another. It's a mutual affection, especially to fellow believers, fellow Christians. And then Peter follows this up with adding the final element, which is simply translated as love. The word, it's agape, it's different than Philadelphia. Philadelphia is brotherly love, mutual affection, human love for each other. Agape is godly love. It's that same love that God and Christ and the Holy Spirit show each other. When Jesus is baptized, God spoke from the heavens. He says, this is my son whom I love. Same word. It's that love that we are supposed to have. We love in this way because God loves us. It's the same love that Jesus spoke about in John 3.16 when he said that, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. It's that same love that John talks about in his letter, 1 John 4, when he writes in verse 10, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And without this love, honestly, none of the rest of the things on this list are going to matter. 
None of it works. Like you see the bookends, right? You've got faith as the foundation, and then you have godly love as the capper, as the top. If you're like me, maybe you've realized, you know, I look at this list and I don't think I can do that all on my own. And if, if you think that, then I'd say you're right. You can't. And that's okay. Because you don't have to do it by yourself. If we let God have control over how we live our lives, if we let him lead us, then we may be able to accomplish some or all of the, you know, we may be able to do this all on our own, like some of these, but I don't think we'd ever be able to do all of these on a level that we need to in order to live truly godly lives. But if God is in control, he can and he will grow these traits in your lives. It's like the fruit of the Spirit that Paul talks about. And I know that if, as you read this, it looks like Peter saying that you need to do this in your own power, with your own effort, where he says, make every effort to do these things. But it, it's not in your power to be able to do that. You've got to rely on God. And, and looking back early in the chapter, it says, God's given you everything you need to accomplish this and continue to give, and he will continue to give you everything that you need. And then, if you have these qualities, you start to see these qualities in your life, like your life will change. Verse 8, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. So if you have these qualities, your life shows change. You won't be ineffective. You won't be unproductive in your knowledge or your understanding or your recognition of God. Your lives will model that of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't have these qualities, though, Peter says that you become nearsighted and blind. Now, I'm nearsighted. That's why I wear my glasses. Um, I, can't, I can see things that are close to me. Like, if I took this off, I can still read everything here, but you guys have all become blobs of blur, where I can see shapes and colors and stuff, but I lose all detail without my glasses on. Which, as, as a shy preacher, when I started doing this, that probably would have been a good way to do it. But I like to look at you, see who's sleeping. This is how Peter says those without these qualities are going to be. They're nearsighted or short-sighted. They don't really see what past what immediately affects them. They don't see beyond themselves. It makes them effectively blind to the world and the things that God see or as God is doing in this world. If you're not seeing growth in these qualities of your life, if you're not seeing improvement, then, then what are you doing? Like you, you get stagnated, you stay in the same spot, or maybe even you regress some. We should see constant improvement in our lives. That's what sanctification is. It's being set apart by God and then progressively being made over time into Christ's likeness. 
It's a progressive thing. It's not going to happen all at once. But over time, you should see improvement. You should see these growing, possessing these in increasing measure, like he says. And it's never something that we're going to, like, arrive at or get there in this lifetime. But, but we will see continual improvement. Our lives will look more like Jesus every day. And these qualities are what we can look like. like that's what it will look like. If you're not improving, though, then the world gets a lot smaller. Because you're not going to be able to see it. It's really just about you. It's your nearsightedness. And we start thinking about us. We start thinking about the sins. We start maybe feeling the, the shame of our sins again, even though they've been forgiven. But Christ died for your sins, and, and when you followed him, he forgave you and cleansed you of your sins. So leave those behind and allow God to begin working in you. And then there's some pretty cool things that happen as a result in verse 10. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter says, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, this list, the latter from verses 5 through 7, you're never going to stumble. Now what he's saying is that you're going to see at the evidence in your life that these qualities are there and that they are growing. And you can trust in your salvation and you're not going to fall away from God because you're cultivating a daily relationship with him. It doesn't mean that you're never going to sin. That's not it. And he talks about not stumbling, but that's not, that's not not sinning. Like, Otherwise, why would Jesus tell us to pray, forgive, and ask for forgiveness from our sins in the Lord's Prayer? Like, it doesn't mean that we're not going to sin. It just means that we're, our faith is going to be able to withstand challenges. That he is the rock that we can build on. Uh, remember in 1 Peter, he talks about that. He talks that the, you know, Jesus is the stone, the cornerstone that you build your house on. But some are going to stumble over that. We don't need to be those people because our faith will withstand those challenges. And then we will not stumble. We will not fall away when those challenges come. And as we're going to see next week, Peter's going to talk about some of those challenges with these false teachers. But you will be able to withstand them because of your relationship with Christ. And you're going to be able to, you're going to receive an amazing reception into the eternal kingdom of our Savior. Do you want to live a godly life like Peter outlines in the opening chapter to this letter? I wouldn't say this is going to be easy. It will be challenging. You've got to be disciplined in order to live this out. And sometimes I think discipline can be like a four-letter word that we don't want to hear. We don't always want to be disciplined. Being disciplined is not always the way of this world you know we want to do things our way we want to we want to just live our way but we shouldn't really want to live the way the rest of the world lives for for some of you you know that's not a problem like you don't have an issue with that but for some it is but if you are disciplined and you open yourself up to god growing and building these characteristics in you then you are going to see 
the fruit from that. Your life will look different. You might be like Peter, and when people look at you, they will be amazed and start to wonder what happened that changed this fisherman into this leader of this church. You cannot do this on your own, but if you wear the name of Christ, if you follow Jesus, he's never that far from you. He's with you. He will always be with you. You don't have to forget that your sins have been forgiven. The work, that, work for that was done 2,000 years ago on Calvary. Jesus died as a perfect sacrifice for your sins. The Lamb of God. And so, follow him. And let him lead you into the godly life. Would you pray with me as we close out? Heavenly Father, Lord, that is our prayer. That we would follow you. That we would let you lead us into a godly life, into that life that looks like that list. We have our faith and, and we add on to that goodness and knowledge and perseverance and godliness and love and all the others. Lord, I pray that each of us would take an honest look at ourselves and, and ask you as well to show us the areas of our life that we need to grow and maybe where we've taken a step backwards. But Lord, we know that that you ask us to repent, just like David said earlier, that you ask us to repent and turn to you. You already know everything that's gone on with us. You just ask us to acknowledge it and, and come to you because you are there waiting with forgiveness, but more importantly, with love. A love that, I, mean, we, I don't even think we can understand it. Help us find that love, the love that is in you, but help us also show that love to others. Father, you showed us that love in Jesus, coming down from his throne in heaven to take on flesh, to die, but then three days later to come back and conquer death. And he invites us all to come to him. And so I pray that we would. Thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.